Welcome to Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. Today, we talk to education consultant Eric Twist about how school leaders can transform America's K-12 education system. Let's go. Givers, Doers, and Thinkers introduces listeners to the fascinating people and important ideas at the heart of American civil society. We speak with philanthropists, nonprofit leaders, social entrepreneurs, historians, journalists, and anyone else who will help us understand contemporary civil society's achievements and failures. We also sprinkle in practical advice for nonprofit leaders and fundraisers. My name is Jeremy Beer, and thanks for joining us. All right. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. We're recording on March 29, 2022, and we are happy to have as our guest a quintessential doer, my good friend Eric Twist, who until very recently was doing as president of Great Hearts Arizona. Uh, from 2008 to 2021, Eric helped build Great Hearts Academies into the largest network of classical schools in the country. Eric is now the principal partner and president of an education consulting startup called Arcadia Education, which, in the interest of full disclosure, I should say here that American Philanthropic is an investor in and an enthusiastic, an enthusiastic investor at that. Eric has a deep knowledge of the charter school and ed reform landscapes in America. He holds degrees from Trinity University, where he studied political science, and Oxford University, where he studied theology and philosophy. He's been married for 20 years to the lovely Allison, who, from what I can tell, raises their six children almost single-handedly. Is that about right, Eric? (laughs) Nah, I'll take the fifth. (laughs) Actually, yeah. (laughs) Thanks thanks for that, Jeremy. You're welcome. You're welcome. (laughs) Welcome to the podcast, uh, Eric Twist. We'll see where this conversation goes. It'll in some ways, it'll be harder than, than many of the ones that I have because we, we know each other so well and we, we talk so often. So I'll, I'm going to try to make sure we aren't just jumping ahead in the conversation because of sort of the mutual knowledge we have. But we're going to talk about schools, uh, schools and civil society, um, the current landscape uh, in, in the K-12 through uh, sector, especially among those who are trying to innovate in that sector, do different things. Um, different things than the things that haven't been working now, it seems, for several generations. So um, let's start, though, with the basics and your background, and we'll kind of get into the broader questions. But what is Great Hearts? Uh, I think people in Arizona, most people in Arizona know what Great Hearts is, I think, um, increasingly in Texas, but everywhere else, it may not be very well known. What is Great Hearts? Uh, why was it started? And why has it succeeded so wildly? Yeah, well, thank you for having me on, Jeremy. It's uh, this is fun to talk to you like this. Um, yeah, so Great Hearts is a network of public charter schools, pretty simply, uh, a very large and growing network of charter schools. Um, it has schools in, like you said, in Arizona and in Texas. It's got about 15,000 students today in Arizona, uh, about 7,000 in Texas. It, it has another thousand, I think, in an online uh, offering that has students both in Arizona and Texas is about to opening it, open its first school in Baton Rouge. Uh, it's looking to uh, extend its reach uh, into uh, Florida uh, and, and even beyond, beyond that. But um, uh, at, the, at the heart of, of the program is, is really uh, the, a classical approach to, to K-12 education. In fact, I think today, Great Hearts is the largest provider of classical education in the country. 
Uh, and wow. it does that in, in the public sphere. You know, a lot of people think of classical schools as mainly parochial. Um, Great Hearts has really carved out a niche in providing that type of education, really a remarkable education uh, to kids tuition free. And uh, it, it plans on continuing, continuing to do that in, in really all the states that have charter environments that make that possible. What, what do you mean when you say it's a classical education? To someone who doesn't know what that term means or maybe thinks they know what it means and maybe right. finds it a little bit scary. What does that mean? Yeah, I, mean, I think at the heart, you know, it, it, for those that, that aren't familiar with it, you can kind of harken back to uh, a sort of more traditional style uh, of education. And, and so when we, when we think about classical education, we think about, you know, of course, studying the classics. Um, giving students a, a really rich engagement with uh, their cultural heritage, right? As Americans, as Westerners. Uh, so that starts even in kindergarten when we think about the, um, the, the, the stories that we're putting in front of them, what a classical school would put in front of them. You think about Aesop's fables and, you know, you think about giving them Robert Louis Stevenson poetry and, and, and things like that, you know, rich stuff, good stuff. Um, and of course, that that uh, uh, takes on more shape and more depth uh, as they get older. And so, uh, really, a classical education is is meant to give them the type of education that, um, for so long, was sort of hidden behind the gates of private and elite institutions. You know, the the elite of all cultures were sort of given, uh, at least in the West, this style of education. Um, deep engagement in uh, in literature, in history, in mathematics, in science, um, in other languages, uh, in the arts, right? Learning how to read music, learning how uh, to understand um, technique in in the fine arts. Um, you know, we think about memorization. We think about um, uh, really having a rich cultural history and and understanding the different mediums of communication that uh, human culture has devised, you know, for thousands of years. Classical education is really attempting to give students as much of that as possible uh, within the K-12 uh, space. So uh, classical education has a distinctive content today in that it is rooted in the classics, uh, rooted in a... Um, um, a sense of Western history, a sense of Western tradition and Western culture and in its good and it's not so good aspects. Right. But there's a style to classical education pedagogy too. Right. Oh, for sure. Greenhouse does it. What is that? How would you characterize the style of teaching that happens in a, in a great art school or a classical school generally that is different than in a, a mainstream public district school? Yeah. I would say probably two, two main distinctions. The first one, as it would be articulated within the classical school movement, would be the Socratic method. And some people have come across mm -hmm. that. But that that would be probably the most uh, distinctive uh, pedagogical style that you find uh, in the classical school movement. And this is, uh, you know, comes under different names, but um, uh, it's, it's sort of different than your typical didactic uh, approach, or you know, you think about a teacher standing at the front and sort of giving you a list of things to memorize. Um, this is this is much more engaging and and uh, much more of a style of the teacher posing either a problem or putting in front of the student a kind of phenomena, uh, you know, something happening. And that, that's true whether it be a sentence in grammar. Uh, it'd be a frog in the in the biology class, or you know, when we think about even literature, or philosophy, you know, a moral problem that 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 might be put in front of the students. 
uh, and then facilitating a conversation about what 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 do we find to be true here, right? What 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 comes at us? Can we name it, right? Can we understand it? Can we articulate it to one another? Um, and and that that method is again, you know, uh, has a rich history. Uh, it's something that too often is relegated to m- maybe the the university setting. It, it it was for a long time forgotten to be something that was truly engaging, even even for kindergartners, right, who are reading an Aesop's fable and and have a have a a beginning sense of something something matters here. There's something important going on in this story and something that I need to wrestle with and think about with my with my classmates, with my teacher. The teacher really in a Socratic seminar style uh, approach um, is is asking almost as many questions, especially as the kids get older. Uh, as they are uh, giving wisdom and, and, and giving answers mm-hmm. uh, themselves, I, I think also sort of attached to that, and this is this is uh, m- more unique only because of how much education has shifted since, say, Dewey, um, maybe Rousseau and Dewey, mm-hmm. uh, is uh, that it is it is actually more traditional and in a sense more, um, uh, especially in the lower grades, when we think about you know primary and, and elementary education, so K K five K six, it it does take seriously that the teacher is the shepherd in the classroom. The teacher is uh, uh, the one driving the culture, and the teacher does know things the students don't know, uh, <laughs> and, and that the students desperately need. <laughs> yeah, know? well, that's the sense. There is a body of knowledge to be known yes. and mastered. Is is part of the one of the premises of classical education. Yeah. There are things out there that ought to be passed on. Mm-hmm. Right? Things it's not just critical things. thinking skills that we're seeking to inculcate. Yes. Yeah. So there is a tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and, and in fact, it is an act of love to pass on that tradition. Right. right. It doesn't mean that the tradition is flawless. Right. I, I think you had said yeah. that earlier. I mean, the best schools are very honest about uh, the the cultural and traditions that we inherit and and look at them uh, with a truthful eye right through a truthful lens um, and those are obviously some of the the richest discussions that human beings have with one another uh, about even how we under understand history or how or certainly in the sciences you know that the the ability to question and and to debate uh, that 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 if you're in a classical school you should see that in spades. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, what you see so often in, especially in K-12 institutions now throughout the country, throughout the world, really, um, is a really bland, a kind of banal approach to education, which is really the most efficient, they, they sort of come up with the most efi- efficient systems for preparing for the next assessment, right? right. And then and you just move on to the next one. And it's, it's really about, I mean, most of us went through this. In fact, it's memorization and regurgitation. But but there is no really exploration, uh, no no conversation, uh, no no kind of rich debate going on about whether or not the thing that we have in front of us we understand and do we believe it to be true, to be good, to be beautiful. Uh, those those questions are well, they're perennial and and they're the most they're the most exciting ones uh, and they're the ones that classical schools have protected. And classical schools are, it seems that this work. Um, Classical education is, I think it's fair to say it's booming. Um, I mean, we did a little bit of work on this uh, with Great Hearts. I can't remember the statistics right now, but uh, the you know, the number of seats, as they say in this in this uh, in this business, uh, that are classical education seats has grown tremendously over the last 
15 or 20 years. Um, what is it that's so attractive? And, and can it continue to grow? Because you and I were with somebody the other night who said, oh, the term classical is scary to people. It, it puts, it kind of puts uh, parents off. Um, how can both those things be true at one time, one at the same time, where it seems to me like it's growing like a weed and yet it's scary? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, that's an interesting question. I like that. I like that question, Jeremy. So I think, first of all, it is absolutely growing. It's not scaring that many people off yeah, right. because it, it's, it's growing like wildfire in many ways. And I think, I think it's growing in, in large part um, for a kind of third pillar that we haven't really talked about that is typical of a classical school model, which is moral formation. Yeah. Um, it is this idea that, well, really it comes down to a particular worldview that, that assumes right out of the gate that there is truth, that there are universal moral truths, and that those universal truths levy some expectation upon each person in each generation, each culture, each nation throughout time. And, and that has been lost in a, in a lot of, uh, well, a lot of education writ large. Right. And, and there are a lot of us uh, in the, I would say the Gen X generation who, you know, we have our kids now going through the K-12 system um, who, who look back on the type of education that we were given, that was very assessment driven and it was sort of stripped of its morality right? Um, or at least it was trying to strip itself mm -hmm. of morality. And we found it very shallow. And I think that there are a lot of parents who are desperate, especially with the wider debates going on in culture, desperate to find schools that adhere to the values of the home, that are, that are at least not going to undermine those values, right? That are not antagonistic against the values of the family. And classical education is really one of the safe harbors, uh, within the education uh, choice movement, uh, mm -hmm. where you can be pretty darn sure that by putting your kids in those schools, uh, that they're going to, you know, we, we used to say this at Great Hearts that that we want those kids to be picked up at the end of the of the day better than they were dropped off, because that's what we want as moms and dads. And so I think the attraction to classical education is probably first there in some sense. There's a there's a there's a general understanding that this is a good place, right? The, the, that the, the type of schools that are adhering to a classical model are doing so because they have a robust anthropology, a, 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 a rich and deep sense of what it means to be good and true and beautiful. Um, now, in a way, by the end, I think the point is very important and in a way that comports with um, the sorts of, of values and, and, and principles that most and a majority of Americans seem to to want to claim for themselves as well. In other words, they're a sort of a woke educational style that might be happening in the K through twelve system now. It's also doing moral formation. It's just doing it in such a way that's uh, ideological and antagonistic to the values of of many of the families sending their children there. Would, would you oh, agree with that statement? Undoubtedly, I mean, it doesn't it, seem, in other words, that relativism is even our problem anymore. We, no. I think, we're, we're, we're you're not using that language. I think quite on purpose, but some people still do, and it's. We're sort of past the age of relativism. We're in an age of ideological um, uh, uh, monism, a sort of a right assurance. Um, but that in and of itself is a, it, it does offer a kind of moral formation. But it's a you, a classical school sort of advocate would all, probably call that moral deformation. Um, oh, whatever. for sure, 
and and I think I think it's you know you might say providential that the classical school movement is where it's at at this moment in America's history because and what I mean by that is that it's growing and that and that that it's actually quite strong right its fibers are very strong and it's it's deeply attractive because uh, I think we've shaken off in a sense as a culture this understanding that there's there's um, a neutral moral space mm-hmm. and and certainly the larger public school system. Uh, uh, is deep in the trenches of indoctrination. Um, now, the uh, the great irony here, Jeremy, is I would say that the classical schools are not actually themselves trying to indoctrinate. Right. Right. No. Um, That's what and, I meant when I used the word ideological. Like that's a yeah. That mean that that implies indoctrination in a way that what you're advocating does not. Yeah. The the best classical schools are apolitical. Mm-hmm. Right. That that they're they're not trying to make political statements. In fact, um, another thing that 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 we would say at Great Hearts all the time as a kind of as a kind of uh, goal, right? Is that our classrooms would be sanctuaries away from the current political noise, the popular cultural and and, and popular political political noise. That there were places where you could step into the past, and that people from both sides of the political spectrum could come together and wrestle with one another, you united by a deep understanding that there is some truth. Now that that is a very different stance, you know, sort of epistemologically in a sense, than uh, and morally than the relativism that maybe we were we were brought up in, or the relativism that we right. that, that we know from the mid twentieth century and on, um, at, at least within the school system. I mean, it's older than that as a tradition, but but uh, I think that that classical schools, you know, some of them certainly have uh, uh, deeper ideological positions or, or more sectarian positions. And I, you know, those you'll find within the private school world, and those are great and good. And and parents should have every right to send their kids there. But when we're talking about uh, the public school classical movement, which is, which is really still in its early, early stages, um, it really is attempting to reclaim in a sense, uh, a space for both sides, you know, uh, with 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 within a neighborhood, within a community, to to yeah. be able to send their kids. But all of them have to agree that there is some right and wrong at the end of the day. There is some answer. There is some truth, um, and that this school is set up to help your children pursue that. Uh, and and so you know, kids kids come out of classical schools with all different types of ideas about how to order society. Um, but one thing that they should all come out uh, agreeing on uh, is some, uh, co- you know, at least a coherent, well-established understanding of right and wrong, um, and and certainly a sense that uh, you can't hold a position within a within a a flourishing society that that there are no answers <laughs> to, to these big moral questions or questions about how you order society. There are answers. They're not. It's not all up for grabs. That's right. Even if um, we can never completely grasp it or all agree. I mean, that's the other side of it. Uh, what if, so it sounds like what you're saying, if we wanted to rebuild, if we put this in the civil society framework and, um, and it seems like one of the things, one of the um, things that's most destructive of civil society right now, this inability to, to disagree within, um, from within a com a community, right? Uh, everything is, um, Everything is every disagreement is sort of uh, cast as uh, um, final and catastrophic. Is it 
it seems like uh, what you would probably want to maintain, you can tell me if I'm wrong, is if we want schools to help us rebuild civil society, it's not really so much about what is being taught in those schools as it is how students are being formed in those schools. Although I guess you probably wouldn't want to dichotomize those two things. Um, no, I wouldn't. I, yeah, I wouldn't want to dichotomize. I mean, there are bad ideas, you know, <laughs> there, there are. So, I, yeah, I, I don't want to dichotomize. As soon as I, I said that, I don't, I don't, I disagree with what I said <laughs> as well. <laughs> well, but I, I, what I think you're getting at, and I, 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 I think, I think it's important to, to consider that it's not just about what you learn, right? So, so kind of um, form and substance, you know, so the, the, the substance of what, of what our students are taught, educators should care deeply about. I mean, uh, they should have a cultural literacy, right? Um, it's it is it is absolutely essential for for school leaders to to come back to this notion that um, they're passing on a tradition and that 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 tradition they're passing on with all of its bruises, right? Uh, well, all of its jewels and all of its bruises. bruises. Um, but. Uh, uh, what I think is happening in the larger, especially in the classical school movement, but I think it's wider than that, is how you teach is as important as what you teach. And so that you can't really, you can't split form and substance, right? This yeah. would be a, an age-old classical idea. Right. And, and so this goes back to the Socratic method, I think. So when we're talking about the inability of people to argue with one another, right? everything's zero-sum. One of the fruits of the Socratic method over time ought to be civil discourse, right? You learn uh, how to engage in disagreement, and, and, and in a sense, you're learning that within a culture, within society, within societal relationships, you have to take the long view in those conversations. We're, we're, we're planting the seeds in K-12 for how do, you in, how do you hold on to an idea with other people and pick it apart and, 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 and try to discern whether or not uh, you see it one way or another. But you're also in that moment. Um, learning how to disagree in those conversations and then go eat together and then go on the field together and play as a team and, and to be in community with one another. Um, now that goes back to, you, you got to have the kids discussing rich things. I mean, you can't give them, you know, just glucose, right? They've got to have some protein. They've got to have stuff they can sink their teeth into um, things that matter because kids were born for things that matter. Mm-hmm. Right. They were shaped for that. And they, they know when you're giving them trivial or trivialities. Right. 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 Um, but when those when those collide beautifully, when you've got rich, consequential ideas matched with civil discourse, uh, I, you know, kids, kids will fall in love with that type of education. And they will hopefully the idea is that they will become better citizens through it. Amen. Well, we will be uh, right back uh, with Eric Twist after the break. All right. Time for a break here with a practicality from my colleague, Jason Lloyd. How are you doing, Jason? Good, good. Uh, Jason is a senior consultant here at American Philanthropic and works with many faith-based nonprofit organizations, obviously a very large part of the nonprofit sector in the United States. Um, Jason, you are going to talk to us about uh, three ways to effectively steward donor relationships 
uh, if you're a faith-based organization. Do I have yep. that right? Yes. Yep. All right. Well, shoot. Give us the first one. <laughs> well, um, first off is uh, organizations should uh, express humility, show humility, uh, honoring donor intent. Uh, it's very easy for organizations to uh, get caught up and um, with whatever donors might want to do and just get let the tail wag the dog, essentially. And so it's important that uh, faith-based nonprofits show humility. And if a, a grant or a donor's interest just does not align to uh, state that and maybe help them try to find an, a similar organization that might uh, use their funds better um, than they, they might use them. So okay. that would be the first. What's the second one? Second is uh, treat donors as real people. Uh, they're not piggy banks. They're not vending machines. And so uh, just making sure that you're able to uh, get to know them as people, to, uh, who, who their kids are, who their grandkids are, what are their hobbies, what are their interests. Very good. Yeah. Uh, treating donors like real people is generally good advice for, for everyone, <laughs> but especially one to get right if you're um, a faith-based organization. And what's the third tip, Jason? The third is just to uh, be a faithful servant. Um, this doesn't mean that you uh, follow, the, the, that the donor is in the, the control seat, but mm -hmm. uh, making sure that you take their money and use it wisely and uh, apply it to the mission and try to uh, reap the benefits of that and show the, show the work that you are doing to the donor. Very good. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate it. Yeah. All right, we are back with Arcadia Education Principal Partner and President Eric Twist talking about uh, uh, the K-12 sector uh, in America today and its relationship to civil society. So we, we really just talked about classical ed uh, in, the, in the first half of our, our discussion, Eric. There's a lot of ferment going on, though, in the K-12 education sector today uh, for a lot of reasons. The two principal ones from the last couple of years being um uh covid uh which um revealed um some pretty fundamental differences in how school systems uh uh see their um uh, their role and and uh, how committed they are to their their role in educating kids uh and then and also the sort of the woke uh revolution uh which has also been challenging for many uh families to navigate um, what are you seeing besides classical ed? What do you see in the K through 12 sector right now that you find most promising? So I think there's, there's a lot. And I, 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 I think two years ago, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have thought it would have accelerated to the extent that it was. So I, I think certainly, you know, you bring up the larger cultural points, Jeremy, and I, I think that's right. There, there's a shift going on there. Parents are more awake, more aware of, the problems in the system than they've ever been. And you, you see lots of associations, local associations mm -hmm. popping up everywhere um, where parents are trying to take back uh, control of the education systems that uh, uh, in many ways they're assigned to, right? By, by their government, they're assigned to it by virtue of where they live. Um, so those, those shifts are important and, and it'll be interesting to see uh, what these new uh, school board members do uh, with the institutions that they are now in charge of. 
Um, I'm not bullish on on that entirely. I don't know if that's where the the major changes are going to be taking place. I I think there are, are a couple other areas where we're seeing just some real innovation and, and kind of revolution ha- happening. Um, and now I, I will couch all this to say it's not happening in every state, right? In in our federalist system, you know, we've got some states that are innovating uh, rapidly. We have others that are flirting with innovation. And by innovation, I mean opening up their states to school choice and, and different right. options than just the government run system. And then we have some that are re, re-entrenching, right? Trying to push out uh, even the little bit of choice that maybe they allowed in in the, in the mid 90s, you know, late 90s when when uh, some of that was was beginning, um, but I think if you're if you're looking at um, well, let's just start. This is in no particular order, but I, I think there are uh, uh, more people than ever questioning the need for a four year degree after high school, which means that people are starting to question what high school is, right? Oh, and, okay. and what yeah. or what ought it to be at scale. Okay. And so I think one of the most interesting innovations taking place is uh, around technical training, mm. uh, vocational training within the nine through 12, sort of apprenticeship work. And you're starting to see some schools marry uh, a traditionalist education, which means, you know, classical, but, but, but more of the older forms of, of, of giving a cultural inheritance and sort of the, the things that every American should know, right? Certain uh, the histories and, and idioms and uh, music and art and poetry and all that, marrying that with preparing to be a carpenter, preparing to be a machinist. Yeah. You know, um, be, being able to leave at 18, uh, you know, and and go apprentice with a, uh, either a small business or a big company. And this is happening both because not everybody is meant to be a scholar. Not everybody is meant for the university. But there are huge economic shifts going on where uh, the value proposition of the debt that you take out for that four-year degree doesn't match up with the jobs that are available to you after you've taken out the debt. Uh, And, you know, we could talk forever about how universities are squandering (laughs) their own sort of inheritance and what they were set up to do. But, there's more and more families and more and more kids that frankly are going, listen, I like working with my hands. Um, and, and if I can get a solid education K through 12, um, where I'm not an income poop, right? I'm, I, I know how to be clean cut. I'm, I'm well-spoken. I can construct sentences well together. Uh, but I, I want to go you know, be a carpenter um, and I want to learn how to do that. The prospects for those kids, Jeremy, uh, to not only live a happy life, right? And working with their hands, doing the things that they love and, and were frankly probably created to be great at, um, but the prospects for them to own their own businesses, uh, uh, to be leaders, right, within the community are massive. Uh, yeah. And I think there are less and less people that are questioning. Uh, in fact, I, I, I think less than ever before are questioning uh, uh, people that come out without a, uh, a university degree. They, as long as you're adding value that, you know, the market will reward that. Um, so I think that that's that's something that really excites me. Yeah, it's a great um, I think, uh, you know, kind of going back to the pandemic and how that's changed, especially the middle and upper middle classes uh, who tend to have more mobility than ever when it comes to work. Um, a lot of them have been thinking again about 
what they value the most. And, and they've come to realize that they, they, they want to be with their kids more and they want to, they want to do the things that they see other people doing on Instagram or in travel brochures or things like that and go, well, you know, if the education system were such that it allowed us more mobility and flexibility, uh, then uh, we would take that. And so I think, I think you're not going to see as much of a growth of online education as some of the uh, uh, pundits will, will tell you. Um, but I think it's going to be more than what we thought two years ago. And I think that's because um, it's, it's, it's getting better. It's not great yet. It's getting better. Uh, I think Great Hearts is probably doing one of the best jobs when it comes to uh, this next iteration of what online education can look like. Uh, but I think you're going to see more of that. Now, as a part of that movement, right, what the, what the online education platform allows is for some really interesting uh, new ideas in terms of how people are associating locally. So this, these pods or micro schools, as, as, as somebody called co-ops, you know, sometimes they're known as, right. um, you know, this, this is sort of the marrying of uh, private association and, and, and a kind of private school wraparound to many times a public online option. So it allows for the education piece, which is hard for parents to solve, uh, to get that, but then wrap around it, you know, eight families, 10 yeah. families uh, that can do, maybe they want to do evangelical Christian co-op or pod. Right. Maybe they just want something that's more aligned to agriculture and getting mm -hmm. their kids out, you know, in into the field and working with animals while also getting their math and their reading and their right. science and all of that. I think we're going to see a lot of that starting to take shape and people going, you know what, I don't need to put my kids in the big box school or even the charter school that's down the street that's right. open, you know, from eight to eight to three, eight to four. Mm -hmm. um, I can dip in and out of my pod. And if I want, uh, we can go and, and, and do that hike in Glacier for a week right. uh, and still keep up with our studies and then come back and get the social enrichment stuff that, uh, that we need through this pod or this co-op or this micro school. So right. um, I think we're going to see a lot more of those over the next five mm -hmm. years. Uh, and uh, it's really I th probably one of the most exciting things happening in education innovation within the K-12 sector. Those are good answers. Those are really good answers. Uh, actually, I wasn't sure what you were going to say. Those are rich answers. It's interesting. It'll be interesting to see if people can really make that shift away from thinking about, I send my kid to school in the morning. He or she comes back at the end of the day. I do it again the next day. I do that and, and really blend now, they, but they had to do it during COVID. So maybe new cultural habits are, will be picked up and really spread. I, I'm, I'll be very curious to see to the extent of that last model can really take you know? Well, here's what's not going away. Parents will need a place. Most parents will need yeah. a place for their kids to be. Yes. And, and most parents will <laughs> want a yeah. place, right? But, That's right? but there is an underlying truth that's not spoken about much, but that, that schools play a kind of daycare role. Right. Uh, and that's true even for 16, 17, 18 year olds, frankly. Mm -hmm. So, right. hell, maybe that's true for college yeah. as, as well to a certain extent, yeah. right? That there's there's some sort of care the community is giving to these children that are that are growing up and they need it. And the mom and dad have things that they need to do in order to provide for the family. So um, it not this is why I'm not you know, I don't I don't think a, a huge online revolution of kids staying in their in their rooms learning. Uh, right. I, don't, I don't see that hitting at scale, but but right. certainly these other associations seem to be 
solving for those those parts that are, are not going away just by virtue of who we are as people. Yeah, no, very good. So let's say you're um, somebody comes to you in your capacity at Arcadia Ed, an education entrepreneur, uh, someone who wants to start some kind of new school to serve their community better. Let's make it very generic right now. I don't want to, I won't give too many details about this kind of person, but just in general, um, you know, are there like a, don't do this, like red flag things you would say to this person right now, whatever you do, don't do this. And are there any, whatever you do, do do this kinds of pieces of advice, or is it also specific that you can't really answer that question? Well, it, it certainly has a specific element that that you could go deep with 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 someone into. But I I do think that there is there there are a couple mistakes that let's call them ed entrepreneurs yeah. make, um, and it it tends to be the same mistake that is often made in the wider nonprofit sector, mm-hmm. which is um, what you have within education, and it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. We have people that are driven by a mission. They have a vision of the good and they, they want to see that thing be realized. Right. Um, But, but the mistake is in thinking that that is sufficient, right? The, the, the mistake is in thinking I've got this idea about how a a curriculum should be uh, uh, developed and, and what pedagogical method ought to be used. And I have, I, I, you know, I have a, I have a sense of the vision of, of the whole, a kind of tableau, right. Of what, of what my school should look and feel and smell like you should care about those things. That's in a sense, that's your product. You you need to know what it is. It ought to be differentiated. You should be able, and you should be willing to jump in front of a bus to protect it in a sense, right. (laughs) Um, Necessary, but not sufficient too often. The ed entrepreneur thinks the idea is enough and doesn't obsess about the operations as much as they obsess about their mission. You must understand that at the end of the day, it is a people organization uh, that has to move those ideas into some executable form, right? It, it, you, you, there's a lot of little nitty gritty things from governance and compliance to filing your, your tax uh, information on time to making sure that you're you've got uh, a clear se- sense of systems and operations for how you're making decisions, mm-hmm. um, making sure that you're communicating clearly both internally and externally. All of those are operational and system things, and they're not the things that most innovators get into a business yeah. to be great at. Right, right. Um, but it is always their downfall. For 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 the, I almost spent a decade on the state charter board here in Arizona, and I will tell you, every time, every single time a school came before us with an academic or a financial problem, it was always downstream of an operational one. Yeah. And and those, you know, the leaders would come up and they would always tell the same story about why their school matters why they got into the business of education, they would most oftentimes tear up because they believe these things deeply. They love their mission, but they did not do the necessary work of thinking about the operations. And so I would tell any ed entrepreneur uh, to, if that's not your gift, to make sure that you're solving for that by who you hire. Surround yourself with people or, Jeremy, I'll make a plug here for Arcadia Education. This is 
in in large part mm-hmm. why we've why we've entered this space because we mm-hmm. see this problem and we see that that even big institutions uh, struggle with this at times. Right. Um, but I would say that would that would be the biggest problem. Mm-hmm. Thinking that ideas uh, are all you need. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I, I and I'm not surprised you made it because we've talked about it a lot. But it's a good place to make it. Uh, that, that that is the one thing to think about for sure. I thought maybe you would say you know don't hire graduates from ed schools. <laughs> well, okay. So, number two. <laughs> I guess I just assume. <laughs> I, so no, you should, you, you probably shouldn't you, I mean, I, I listen, I found uh, in the lower, in the really lower grades, oftentimes they have, there are some skills that you acquire in the ed schools that are really helpful. K one, two, maybe three. Mm-hmm. Um, the older, the older the students get, the more what you really want are content experts, mm-hmm. um, because the kids are going to be hungry for depth in right. those areas. It's not so much strategy, right? There's so much strategy and process and tricks, um, mm-hmm. and 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 those are really helpful when in early formation years. Uh, but gosh, depth of knowledge and and hot, you know, hiring people who love their subjects who yeah. love them deeply. I mean, that, that, that covers a multitude of, uh, of, of, of mistakes in the classroom. Now you also, by the way, you need to, you need to make sure, and this is, I would say this to anybody running a classical school, you've got to make sure you, you uh, hire people that love people more than they love ideas. They should love ideas. They right. should love their subject matter, <laughs> but gosh, make sure that they also love people. Could you get a competitive advantage if you could swing it? right now um, by kind of blowing through the pay scale for your teachers. If you were an ed entrepreneur, an innovator, Sam Payne, people are going to start it at 60 and you're going to be, you can make a hundred grand here within 10 years. I mean, something like that, something crazy like that. Um, Could that, would that be a competitive advantage? Is that even possible to, to financial? I don't think it's, I don't think it's possible. Um, I mean, this is, if it was possible, Jeremy, there'd be a, there'd be a lot of people doing it. So um, it's, it, you know, if you, if you're going to start a private school and you think you can get 40, 50, 60,000 a year for it um, because you're going to need to provide all the other things that that number is going to, going to require. No, I, I think, I think it, it provides some advantage. Absolutely. But there have been, there have been studies on this. Um, and, and I think that, you know, anything over 75, although with inflation, maybe that's now 95, I don't yeah. know, but yeah. um, you, you, the, Definitely the advantage, it, the advantage doesn't go up as, as much as you think. Um, right. uh, work-life balance is really important. One, one thing that, that it's easy for people to forget is that teachers, they don't get to reschedule the meeting, right. And say, well, I can't do it today. I got, you know, right. they have to be in a place uh, with oftentimes a lot of kids who each one of them is eternally valuable (laughs) and each one of them, mom and dad have deposited, right. Their most precious resource into the hands of these, uh, 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 of these teachers. And, and they've got to be kind of delivering an ROI on that deposit every single day. That's sort of the expectation. It's an interesting (laughs) business, you know, when you think about it in, in that sense, but it, what teachers do is difficult, you know, it really is. And, um, uh, teachers need uh, to have time to interact with their colleagues, to not just be isolated in their classrooms, 
to be isolated uh, in, in their own echo chamber of even their grade or their subject matter. Um, they, they need to be with a, a sort of college of faculty in a sense. They need, they need to be building adult relationships and, and the culture of the school, the principal, the headmaster needs to be uh, curating uh, those adult interactions so that it is a place that, that adults want to live in, right? It's not just a place that they go and expend themselves for their students, but they, they are themselves enriched by the relationships that they're building on campus. That goes a long way to keep people uh, in, in, in what is, frankly, a very tough uh, industry. No doubt about it. Okay, tell me why, this will be my last substantive question to you. Tell me why I, not just I, Jeremy Beer, but I, listener to this podcast, should have hope for the K-12 through education sector in America. Is, is it always just going to be around the fringes? We can have some good schools. Around the fringes, there'll be some micro things happening that are good. But 90% of the kids are going to be getting a poor and or ideological education, or is there real hope somewhere that I can latch on to? There is hope in places. There, there are states uh, where I think you can be hopeful. Um, I think that there is reason to be hopeful and, uh, and, and extremely afraid. Yeah. Um, You know, if, if you're raising your kids in Illinois, if you're raising your kids in California, in if you're raising your kids in the Northeast, I don't know if there's much hope. Mm. Uh, what we're seeing in the Sun Belt, what we're seeing in the Southwest, mm. uh, is this sort of movement of giving back to parents uh, the their children's future, and and that that I think is going to pick up speed. I think mm. you're going to see more of that going on, partly because. States are now competing for families. Uh, they're not just competing for employees and for businesses. They're competing mm. for families. Mm. And, and the more that you have stories like Arizona and Texas and Florida, uh, where, you know, you hear mom and dad saying, well, our biggest problem is we had too many choices, right? We didn't know exactly where to, to put our, our, our kids, where we had to, we had to really think about it, but, but we found a great spot for, for little Timmy or whatever. Um, so many parents around the country would long to have that problem of choice. Right. Uh, and, and so I think that there are a lot of States, uh, you know, listen, I think of Missouri, Arkansas, um, uh, I think Iowa has made some huge changes, West, West Virginia, Ohio, mm-hmm. um, there, there is some, uh, there's some really amazing uh, stuff going on policy-wise that I think gives us reason to think that then moms and dads, uh, education innovators, institutions are going to find a rich environment there with which to scale what's already proven itself to work. Um, and it's sort of where we started the conversation. There are going to be other places that cut that innovation off and those choices off completely. Uh, particularly just because they're completely in the pockets of those politicians are completely in the pockets of the teachers unions. And they're they're They have all fallen prey, Jeremy, to this idea that institutions are more sacred than people, right? Yeah. That, that the institution is the thing that has somehow become worth protecting rather than the children that they were, or the families they were meant to serve. Uh, and some States are doubling down on, on, on that bad idea and other States aren't. So where, where the other where the, where the other states are innovating, 
Uh, I think we're going to see some just wonderful things happening, cultures thriving, uh, and the next generation in those states being happier and more prepared than the states that are right next door to them. That's very well put. So Arcadia Ed uh, is being launched on May 5th, formally. Uh, um, very quickly, and you'll, you'll, people can go ArcadiaEd.com, I believe, right? It's a website. There's information yep. there about it. But tell very quickly, what will Arcadia Ed be doing to help propel this good stuff in the K-12 sector? Yeah, well, I mean, one way we've been putting it is, I think I said it earlier, you know, helping institutions love their operations as much as they love their mission. So. Mm-hmm. We want to get upstream uh, with leaders really in any area of the, of the sort of back-end support of a school uh, mm-hmm. to make sure that it's thriving, make sure it's, you know, it's firing on all cylinders. So that is, uh, you know, team health, project management. Um, you know, we're, we're doing even marketing right now for, for, for some schools, mm-hmm. uh, governance and compliance, all the paperwork and stuff, market right. analysis, if you're growing. Uh, but a big part of what we're doing is the overall, the whole overall HR ecosystem from talent acquisition, uh, making sure that you're well positioned in the marketplace with your uh, with your offering and your messaging uh, to attract the best candidates to you. And then all the things that need to be happening within your institution once you've hired that person to make sure that you are bringing them into the most vibrant and rich and accountable environment that you can. Um, that a lot of schools struggle with that. So Arcadia Ed is going to be offering. Uh, a ton of support already is, frankly, yeah. uh, for institutions that uh, that need to get that uh, up to, up to snuff, as they say. Fantastic, great stuff. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for all you do, and thanks for being on here today. Thanks for having me, Eric Twist, uh, principal partner and president of Arcadia Education, which you can follow at arcadiaed.com. And uh, it's early days, but it will be a big thing here soon. Thanks to Eric. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon.